So their teleological or design argument from cosmic fine-tuning, uh, part one, looking at cosmic fine-tuning. So there's uh, Professor William Lane Craig here, uh, noting that scientists have discovered that the existence of, well, not just intelligent life, but, but life, uh, depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions given in the Big Bang itself. Uh, indeed, in addition to their being uh, laws of nature in the first place. This fine-tuning is of two additional sorts. First, when the laws of nature are expressed as, as mathematical equations, you find appearing in them certain constants, like the, the constant that represents the force of gravity. Uh, the laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants. And second, there are initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. For example, the, the amount of, of entropy, uh, or the balance between matter and antimatter. Uh, in the universe from its uh, origination. These constants and, and quantities of things uh, have been discovered to fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. Uh, so a change in the strength of the atomic weak force by one part in 10 to the power of 100 that's a very uh, small change, would have pre prevented a life-permitting universe. The cosmological constant which drives the inflation of the universe is fine-tuned to around one part in 10 to the 120. Uh, the odds of the Big Bang's low entropy condition existing by chance have been calculated to be of the order of uh, 1 out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Uh, these are uh, beyond astronomical, really. So Stephen Hawking, in his last book, uh, comments that at first sight it seems remarkable that the universe is so finely tuned. Uh, maybe this is evidence that the universe was specially uh, designed, although, of course, uh, he thinks not. Well, let's try to construct an argument uh, for design from this observation of cosmic fine-tuning. Bill Craig argues uh, in, in this way in a lot of his uh, works and debates and so on. So premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe could be due either to physical necessity, could be due to chance, or it, it could be due to design. Second premise, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. If we can argue against those alternatives, we can draw the conclusion, three, that it is due to design. But the interesting thing is how uh, he will go about doing the, the crucial step two. How do we rule out necessity and chance? How do we rule in design as the best explanation positively? So uh, Stephen Hawking in uh, The Grand Design uh, comments, it, it appears that the fundamental numbers, even the form of the apparent laws of nature, are not demanded by logic or physical principle. In other words, things could have been different. So there, at least Stephen Hawking would agree with Craig in ruling out uh, an appeal to uh, physical necessity in order to explain 
this fine-tuning. He really agrees that things could have been different. Uh, so how do we make the choice between chance and design? Well, here, what Craig actually does he, is he appears to this, appeals to this specified complexity criteria that we looked at uh, in our discussion of the biological intelligent design argument. But here we can use the same criteria at the cosmological level. Uh, so uh, just to remind you, Craig argues that in addition to high improbability, you also need conformity to an independently given pattern to indicate design. When we have these two elements, we have this specified type of complexity, which is the tip-off to, to design, and this nice concrete example of the poker game, any deal of the cards is just as unlikely and very improbable as any other, but if whenever a certain player happens to be dealing the cards, he's the one that ends up with all four aces, which of course allows him to win, uh, then we would get very suspicious of him. And if he, if he said to us, why are you suspicious of me and accusing me of cheating, any deal of cards is just as unlikely as any other. They're all one possible deal out of all of the possible deals. So what are you getting annoyed about? Well, we wouldn't let that uh, explanation wash. Clearly, there is something implicating him in cheating by design in the fact that he hits this independently given specification at long odds. So Dawkins talking about uh, we could say the, the cosmic design problem. Uh, Dawkins will say that, that the laws and constants of physics are fine-tuned in such a way as to set up the conditions under which peacocks and humans and their brains and so on will come into existence. So you can note that what is an issue for Dawkins here is that there's, there's complexity, this fine-tuning, uh, and that that complexity is in such a way as to achieve this particular uh, goal, which picks out that way of things being as being different from all of the other ways of things being, which are lifeless, uninteresting ways of things being. There's only one unlikely combination of laws, or a, a small subset of possible combinations of the way things are, out of a huge number of possible ways that things uh, could have been within those laws, uh, which allows for life. So we have this complexity and this specification of uh, it allowing life. Likewise, Stephen Hawking, uh, the issue, he points out the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. So again, he's talking about the issue being a specified complexity, very special, highly improbable. So really they're, again, agreeing that the, the issue is that specified complexity seems to indicate design. What do you do with that if you don't believe in a designer? Well, Craig is really arguing, therefore, uh, things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed. The fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity Ergo, it was probably designed. Major uh, comeback to uh, this design inference from the fine-tuning uh, is what's known as the multiverse, multiple universes hypothesis. So here's Dawkins uh, replying to this cosmic design argument, and he says, look, there, there are billions of universes having different laws and constants. 
We could only find ourselves in one of the minority of universes where those laws and constants happen to be propitious to our evolution, happen to allow us to exist. So, of course, we, we, won't, we'll, we will only find ourselves existing in a universe that permits us to exist. But he's saying, actually, although it looks like that's specified complexity, although it is specified, it allows us to exist, it's not really complicated. Because there are loads of other universes that randomly have lots of different combinations of different tunings, different initial conditions, and so on. And if there are enough of those different universes, we give ourselves enough different rolls of the dice, different deals of cards, that, such that by luck it becomes plausible that some of those deals, some of those rolls, would by luck hit the specification of permitting life, then it's no longer a complex hitting of that specification, and so you can't use that as an argument for design. You see what he's, he's doing there, by appealing to maybe there are lots of other different, different universes. Uh, well, we can reply to this in a number of different ways. In, in a cumulative case, we could say an appeal to multiverse hypothesis is speculative, uh, ad hoc, uh, walks a finely tuned <laughs> tightrope between inadequacy and incoherence, and I'll illustrate uh, these one by one in a moment. It, it fourthly, is disconfirmed by the available empirical evidence. And fifthly, this appeal is question-begging in that it assumes some sort of universe-generating mechanism to produce all of these differently-tuned universes. Uh, what is producing all of those differently-tuned universes, uh, such a mechanism would itself require fine-tuning. Uh, let's illustrate these. Uh, the appeal is speculative, uh, as astrophysicist Rodney Holder says. Uh, the physics that is associated with these different multiverse theories is speculative, to say the least, especially when it comes to string theory, which is Stephen Hawking's favourite version of this sort of multiverse uh, theory. Uh, this is, this is uh, sort of bleeding edge, cutting edge, uh, mathematical kind of, maybe things are this way. It, it's not like, well, you know, we've got this well-tested, proven theory of things uh, uh, that uh, is supported by empirical evidence. We made these predictions and so on. It's all very kind of speculative, abstract stuff. Secondly, the appeal is, is ad hoc, that is unsupported. Really, Dawkins is arguing like this. He's saying, okay, premise one, if there were enough different universes, different universes, then the specified life-permitting structure of our universe wouldn't be complex or unlikely enough to justify making a design inference. Second premise, there are enough different universes. Conclusion, therefore the fine-tuning does not justify a design inference. Now flashing away is this crucial premise too. How does Dawkins know that there are enough different universes out there to undermine the fine-tuning argument? Silence, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
It's a bit like, uh, look at my culturally relevant illustration here, monkeys or Ibsen, okay? Um, if X number of monkeys with enough typewriters were randomly typing away enough paper, uh, then maybe they could type the plays of Enric Ibsen by chance alone, okay, randomly. But anyone faced with the many monkeys hypothesis as an actual explanation for a copy of the plays of Ibsen, surely is going to ask if there's any independent evidence for the existence of a sufficient number of monkeys having been typing away randomly for long enough. And in the absence of actual evidence, independent evidence for the, the random monkey typing pool, are going to prefer the one author explanation. Yeah? Well, likewise with the fine-tuning argument. Theoretical physicist Brian Greene says that people should be sceptical of multiverse theories because there is no evidence supporting their existence. Thirdly, this appeal walks a fine-tuned tightrope between, uh, we could say, inadequacy of explanation and incoherence. So Hawking, as I say, appeals to uh, a sort of combination of string theories, which he calls M-theory. Uh, he says M-theory allows for maybe uh, 10 to the 500 possible different universes, possible different ways a universe could be that are consistent with the, the, the mathematical rules of uh, M-theory, okay? Uh, each having its own uh, sort of laws within that, that same mathematical construct. 10 to the 500 possible different universes. Well, as Bruce Gordon points out, there are many independent constants and factors that are fine-tuned to a high degree of precision to allow life to exist. And when you're multiplying independent factors together, uh, you, you multiply them together. You don't add them. You multiply them. And so you get a sort of exponential increase in improbability. Uh, the cumulative effect uh, is that the, these fine-tunings, uh, the, the, the improbabilities spiral so quickly because you're multiplying them together that that significantly erodes the probabilistic resources of the, the so-called string landscape. Uh, how, you know, is, 10 to the, is 10 to the 500 going to be enough different universes to make it, it probable? Uh, you have some mechanism producing uh, these, these things uh, that they're going to hit on uh, the right combination uh, of initial conditions and laws and that they will have the, the right laws and you know, having three dimensions uh, physical dimensions rather than just two which you know, makes all sorts of things very difficult to imagine life in two dimensions uh, people have pointed out for example so Bruce Gordon also then points out that if it's a consequence of the um, e eternal inflation, one of these theories that produces lots of different uh, universes, uh, eternal inflation theory, if it's a consequence of that, uh, that say um, endless copies of ourselves exist, holding every conceivable opinion and involved in every conceivable activity, because you end up saying that, that there are lots of different universes. I mean, maybe there's like not exactly an infinite number, but there's so many 
of these different universes out there that, you know, in one of them, uh, Donald Trump is not president of the United States. You know, who could imagine? Or like, all sorts of strange things might be occurring, you know, because there's all sorts of opportunities for things to happen in all of these vast numbers of different universes, you see. Um, he says, if this is a consequence of the theories, then surely it's sort of successfully reduced itself to absurdity. Uh, a fundamental implication of the theory is that every possible event, no matter how improbable, will happen eventually countless many times. Um, but that would destroy science. That, that, that hypothesis is destroying science altogether as a rational enterprise. You come across something and you say, oh, that's a bit surprising. Maybe we need some sort of scientific theory to, to explain. And you say, well, you know, stuff happens, doesn't it? Because, I mean, there's you know, loads of different stuff happening all over the place. And everything's you know, happening innumerable number of times, really. So, I mean, it's only to be expected. Uh, oh, a unicorn just popped into existence by random uh, quantum fluctuations in the hallway. Oh, well, you know, stuff happens. Uh, kind of, you know, and it happens innumerable many times. You know, it's only to be expected, really, isn't it? Kind of, um, would you end up doing science if you really believed in uh, some of these theories that say, you know, it, nothing, uh, even the things as unexpected and, and unlikely as the combination of laws that permits life, is not really surprising. Well, what is really surprising uh, on, on that hypothesis? Fourthly, the appeal to multiverses is, is disconfirmed. Here's a quote from atheist uh, Roger Penrose in his book, a recent book, Fashion, Faith and Fantasy in the New Physics of the Universe. He points out, consider how ridiculously cheaper in the sense of improbabilities uh, it would be simply to produce, by the mere random collision of particles, say something like the entire solar system with all of its life ready-made, or even just a few conscious, what, are, what physicists call Boltzmann brains, after physicists have thought of this idea, just random collisions of atoms, uh, random quantum fluctuations, whatever, and you know, a brain just comes together by chance and starts thinking, thinking, oh, here I am, uh, why am I here? So um, that would be, uh, in terms of improbabilities, a lot less unlikely than the huge improbabilities associated with the fine-tuning of the universe for life. Uh, so Penrose says, the problem is, why did we not come about this way? You know, a, a, a solar system-sized patch of uh, life-permitting reality. Uh, coming into existence or something, um, us just being these uh, floating brains who've just popped into existence. Why didn't we come about this way as observers, rather than from an absurdly less probable uh, 1.4 times 10 to the 10 tedious years of evolution in a life-permitting universe with all its fine-tuning and so on? It seems to me that this conundrum simply points to the incorrectness of the, the bubble, lots of different splitting off multiple universes uh, idea. Uh, Luke Barnes says, uh, the problem is not that we might be these sort of Boltzmann brains that have just fluctuated into existence. Uh, rather here, the problem is that we aren't. It's much more likely, though, that we would be <laughs> under the multiverse idea, because it's it's cheaper in terms of improbabilities for such things to happen 
And if you've got all of these multiple universes with things, you know, random quantum fluctuations happening in them, then the average observer in reality as a whole would probably be one of these Boltzmann brains. But surely we think we're not such a thing. Uh, Barnes says Boltzmann brains do not need cosmic fine-tuning because they form by means of freak quantum fluctuations. If small regions of order are more likely than large regions of order, yeah, then Boltzmann brains are vastly more common than observers like us in large, low-entropy universes like ours. If only very special, ad hoc, and implausible multiverse theories avoid this problem, then the multiverse itself is, is fine-tuned, uh, which leads us on to the, the next problem, which is that an appeal to multiverses is question-begging. So as the agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis puts it in his book, The Goldilocks Enigma, why is the universe just right for life, not too hot, not too cold, like the Goldilocks porridge, yeah, just right? For life. He's, he, he points out that multiverse theories, uh, at least if they're sort of scientific ones, merely shift the problem up a level from universe to multiverse because there has to be a finely tuned universe generating mechanism. The multiverse theories cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life. It's a bit like saying, if, okay, if we imagine some kind of physical mechanism bubble universes or whatever that's producing different universes. Well, why are all the universes that this mechanism produces different from one another? Why, why isn't it like a photocopying machine that produces a lifeless universe, another identical lifeless universe, another identical lifeless universe? And why is it producing universes that have slightly different amounts of entropy, slightly different proportions of matter and antimatter, slightly different combinations of laws. Why differences in all of those kinds of things, both constants and initial conditions being different and so on, such that it produces enough different universes to undermine the design inference. Well, such a mechanism, in order to produce all of those differences, itself has to, as it were, contain the information to make sure that it produces all of those differences, and that itself is an example of fine-tuning. So you've just shifted the problem along our upper universe level, as Davies says, from the universe to the multiverse, rather than solving the problem of fine-tuning. So that's the multiverse objection. Richard Dawkins famously, he tries that, but he also comes up with what he thinks is a knockdown metaphysical objection to appealing to God here. And this is the central argument of his book, The Design, uh, the, the, the God, uh, um, I've forgotten the name, of his, the name of his book, The God Delusion. Uh, he, Dawkins says this, he says, look, the designer himself in order to be capable of designing, would have to be another complex entity of the kind that in turn needs the same kind of, i.e. design explanation. So really he's asking, he's saying, if you appeal to a designer to explain the fine-tuning, then, you know, who made that designer? Who designed the designer? 
and who designed them and who designed you know we might as well just stop with the universe rather than get this infinite regress Dawkins says if you're trying to explain something improbable like the fine-tuning of our universe it can never suffice to invoke an entity that is itself at least as improbable which is what you'd be doing by pointing to a designer. So any, any designer of a universe would have to be at least as improbable as the universe. And so that's not an advance in our understanding and ability to explain things. <clears throat> Question. Do we make an explanatory advance if we explain this complex self-portrait in terms of the existence of the yet more complex Edvard Munch? Um, answer, yes. <laughs> um, Munch is much more complex than his self-portrait, but uh, not only uh, do we make an explanatory advance, we make a true explanatory advance when we understand the origin of this painting in terms of appealing to its yet more complicated designer. Um, Bill Craig points out that in order for an explanation to be the best explanation of something, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation, which is really what Dawkins' rule uh, would amount to. He's, he's really saying you need to have an explanation of your explanation, if you're, uh, and so on. Craig points out that such a requirement would generate an infinite regress, so that everything becomes inexplicable. Well, that's one way of replying to, to one line of, of Dawkins' support for his, his argument. Uh, here's another angle. Dawkins says that critics of my book uh, try to deny that a god capable of, de of designing something complex must himself be complex. I mean, how silly and obtuse can uh, theologians and philosophers be trying to deny that a god capable of designing something complex must himself be complex in the very sense that requires an appeal to design. God has to be clever enough to calculate the exact values of the physical constants that would fine-tune the universe, says Dawkins. Uh, you call that simple? God has to have enough bandwidth to listen to the prayers and praises of billions of people simultaneously. The one thing he cannot be if he's to match up even minimally to the job description is simple. And Dawkins misunderstands, quotes but misunderstands Richard Swinburne on the idea of God's simplicity, theologically speaking. So Dawkins quotes uh, Swinburne saying that theism postulates for its one cause a person with infinite power, infinite knowledge, infinite freedom. Dawkins says God is simple for Swinburne because there is only one of him. That's only part of what Swinburne was saying, you will notice. That yet that one God has enough bandwidth to listen to the prayers and praises of billions and, and so on. But here's what Swinburne actually uh, says. He says, a person could not be a person if he had zero degrees of power and knowledge and freedom and so on. But to suppose a finite limit to these qualities is less simple than to suppose no limit. Because you can ask the question, well, why does this being only have that much ability to know, that much power, and not more, when it, you know, more is possible, and so on. 
Uh, and to suppose infinite degrees of these qualities bound together and bound together eternally is to postulate the simplest kind of person that there could be, the simplest kind of designing agency there could be. So Swinburne's point isn't just that on theism there's only one God, but that God doesn't have just some power, but is almighty, for example, and so on. This is, metaphysically speaking, simpler than explanations where one can ask, like one can ask of, of Ibsen or Munch, well, why this much and not less or more of this quality that they have as a person? You know, strength or power or knowledge or, or what have you. The agnostic philosopher Anthony Kenny, uh, who was chairing a dialogue with uh, a Church of England uh, bishop and Richard Dawkins, got involved in the conversation at, at this point because Kenny wanted to point out that you can distinguish complex, what he called complexity of structure, having lots of uh, independent parts, bits, put together, arranged in order to do something, like a, uh, one of those uh, micro-machines inside ourselves that we were looking at earlier. We can distinguish complexity of structure from what he calls complexity of function or ability to do things. And he illustrated this distinction with an electric razor and a, a cutthroat razor. It says, look, the electric razor basically can be used to trim your beard, cut your hair. I suppose you could use it as a, a paperweight as well. Okay? The cutthroat razor, uh, well, you could use it as a paperweight, you can use it to cut your hair with, you can use it as a lettle opener, you can use it to chop cabbage with, uh, you could use the end of it as a screwdriver, you, could, you can do a lot more different things with the cutthroat razor than you can do with the electric shaver. The electric shaver has a lot more complexity of structure than the cutthroat razor. But the cutthroat razor has a lot more complexity of function, power to do different things. Okay. So, so he made that distinction, used that illustration uh, to make the point really that just arguing that, that any god worth the name must be able to do a lot of different things, have complexity of function, listen to everyone's prayers, calculate the fine-tuning of the laws, etc., doesn't mean that, that that being, that God, must have a complexity of structure. But of course, in terms of the fine-tuning, the specified complexity argument, specified complexity is all about a specified complexity of structure arrangement of parts in an unlikely way to you see so Anthony Kenny is pointing out that Richard Dawkins's argument about God having to be complex in the very same sense is just wrong Dawkins just equivocates over different meanings of the word complexity to make his argument here's how Dawkins responded to Anthony Kenny having made that distinction uh, between uh, uh, making this argument that complexity of function, arguing for that doesn't demonstrate complexity of structure, which is what Dawkins needs to argue any designer must have to generate this infinite regress problem. Dawkins' reply was, I really don't see what you're saying. <laughs> OK. 
Okay, I'll leave that with you. Well, as Jay Wesley Richards points out in a, in a very nice paper on divine simplicity in this book, For Faith and Clarity, uh, points out, he says, the doctrine of divine simplicity is, is principally the claim that God is not made up of elements or properties, parts or bits that are more fundamental, that have more fundamental existence than, than God is. So this pointer or uh, electric shaver or something is made up of parts and those parts exist as things even when you take apart the electric shaver. So that you have this contingent arrangement of contingent things arranged together in a complex way to achieve a function. But if there is a God, as theists have traditionally conceived him, God is not made up of contingent, separable parts that happen to have been arranged somehow to achieve the function being divine. Right? That's not how theists think of God. God is just, he exists eternally, necessarily, as God. Right? Uh, so, the doctrine of divine simplicity, um, this doesn't entail that God doesn't have distinguishable properties, that he, you know, he can have knowledge and power and so on, or that God isn't a trinity of divine persons, he's three persons in one personal being. Um, but the members of the Trinity are not separable parts of God in the sense that, you know, God the Son could exist whilst God the Father and God the Holy Spirit not exist. They come as a, as a metaphysical package deal uh, that is definitive of what God is, as Christians conceive him. Uh, and they're not separable parts like parts of a, a machine, yeah? So, uh, atheist Thomas Nagel agrees with this criticism. Uh, he says, uh, God is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world. Which basically is saying Richard Dawkins is assuming any designer uh, would have to be in order for his criticism to apply to it. And I have here, uh, the OMG Design Your Own Deity Fridge Magnets. You can buy this online with these pictures. Uh, of different iconography of, uh, of different gods, like the Greek gods and the Norse gods and the Hindu gods and so on, in fridge magnet form, and you can like take the head of Buddha and put it on the body of Zeus and make your own, you know. Um, under a monotheistic conception of God, God is not this arrangement, unlikely arrangement of bits. But it's from unlikely arrangements of bits that achieve a function, in, an independent specification, that the design argument is making an inference to design. So to say, oh yeah, but you know, who, if you say God is the designer, well who designed him, is to assume that God is like an arrangement of fridge magnets. But uh, maybe there are other ways of existing than being a contingent arrangement of bits. And the, indeed, theists have traditionally conceived of God as exi existing metaphysically in a different way, existing necessarily, eternally, and so on. And, and Dawkins, at the very least we can say, Dawkins doesn't give any arguments that address that conception of God, doesn't give any arguments that show that God couldn't have that kind of existence as a being. And so he just doesn't address uh, the main issue that his, he really needs to address in order to push his argument. 
And so uh, atheist philosopher Eric Weilenberg, in a paper on Dawkins' central argument, uh, concludes that the central atheistic argument of the God delusion is unconvincing uh, for precisely this reason. The end. <laughs>